You say either, and I say either. You say neither, and I say neither. Either, either, neither, neither. Let's call the whole thing off. Ah, such a fuss about a few little words. You and I know how to speak proper, don't we? But oh, the mistakes other people make. It's enough to induce laughter. You say laughter, and I say laughter. You say after, and I say after. Laughter, laughter, after, after. Let's call the whole thing off. The trouble is, there are so many ways for them to get it wrong. Not that you or I ever would, would we now? Hmm? I mean, try this short test. Which is the version that you would automatically use? And are you sure it's right? Would you say distribute or distribute? Do you use that often or often? Do you have a garage or a garage? And spread margarine on your scone or margarine on your scone? Or vice versa, vice versa, vicky verky. Is it almond or almond? It is anchovy, though, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, surely only Delia Smith says anchovy. Analogous or analogous? You must be the judge. Talking of judges, would you prefer magistrate or magistrate? With all these decisions, do you feel I'm harassing you or harassing you? Evolution or evolution? Longitude or longitude? Are you already bored with this questionnaire or is it questionnaire? Seriously now, don't you think this preoccupation with how we say words is lamentable or lamentable? Perhaps it depends where you are. But are you likely to be in Newcastle or Newcastle? One of them is wrong to the people of Penrith, or is that Penrith? Oh, it's also ideological to some, ideological to others, of course. And that's just pronunciation briefly touched upon. What about grammar? Can you ever accept that the boy done good? Was us ever robbed? Are yous always going to be pedantic about these matters? Or can you and me agree to differ? If you expect this programme will settle once and for all which is the correct spoken usage by, you might say, a definitive pronouncement of some kind, then you are going to be disappointed. People dispute even how to pronounce pronunciation. There is apparently a society devoted to our eternal confusion. Good evening. I am the president of the Loyal Society for the Relief of Sufferers from Piss Pronunciation. <laughs> for people who cannot say their worms correctly. Or who use the wrong worms entirely so that other people cannot underhand the bird they are spraying. <laughs> it's just that you open your mouth and the worms come turbling out in say that you dick knock what you're thugging about. Ronnie Barker, of course. Although not strictly mispronunciations at all, more a series of homonymic, sometimes spooneristic malapropisms. But already, so much to disagree about. And we haven't even mentioned accents yet. Do you squirm at a scouse voice or jib at a Geordie one? Do you bristle at Brummie, cackle at Cockney, giggle at Glaswegian and snigger at Somerset? Many do, as we shall hear. Speaking proper seems fraught with obstacles. And there are those who say that when it comes down to it, there is no such thing as final, eternal, definitive right and wrong in this context anyway. That it's ultimately all a matter of taste or fashion or class, geography, convention, education, background, history. It's a sociological phenomenon and by its nature contingent and transitory and so it's pointless imposing or trying to police rules and regulations that can at best be only arbitrary and evanescent. But if it is all simply random, ephemeral and conditional, how on earth did we learn to speak intelligibly in the first place? Is the pursuit of speaking proper, 
proper, so to speak? Or is it just another excuse for prejudice? George Bernard Shaw famously wrote, It is impossible for an Englishman to open his mouth without making some other Englishman hate or despise him. Khalid Aziz runs a management consultancy company advising top managers on, among other things, communication skills. And recently he commissioned a survey to see if prejudices about the way the British speak are still alive and thriving. It caused quite a stir when Radio 4's PM programme first reported its findings. Which were what exactly, Mr Aziz? Certain accents were associated with dishonesty, uh, the Scouse accent in particular. Certain accents were associated with dullness, the Brummie accent, no surprise there, perhaps it's very flat. Certain accents were associated with financial probity, the Scots accent, and certain accents particularly the southern accents, the home counties' accents, received pronunciation, were associated with success. People who had, for example, northern accents did tend to think that they were looked down upon by people with southern accents, and this was confirmed by people with southern accents who said the most successful accent you can have is a southern accent. But in the same way, people with northern accents also said the most successful accent you can have is a southern accent. So clearly, there's something in this. Oh, dear. I, I thought it was a touch unfashionable to champion old-fashioned TP talking proper. Surely we're not advocating a resurgence, not here on the BBC of all compliant places. Mr Aziz is... Well, we believe, from what we've seen, is that RP, Received Pronunciation, so-called BBC English, which used to be described as the accent of the Oxfordshire vicar cycling through his parish, is the one that's best understood by most people, which is perhaps why the BBC English accent evolved into that. Now, of course, the BBC today is a very broad church and it encompasses a whole raft of uh, accents even in those areas such as news and current affairs where you would want to have maximum understanding. But we're talking about degree here. Uh, the soft Welsh lilt of somebody like Hugh Edwards is one thing, but if he had a broad, you know, from the Valise accent, that might well not be something that could um, be tolerated for any length of time for a national broadcast. Uh, and it's a question of, of degree. And again, it comes down not so much to accent, but to enunciation. And enunciation is simply all about how you sound the beginnings of words and how you sound the ends of words. Now, we are talking about different accents, if you like, for different uses. It is highly entertaining to hear, you know, a Belfast Irishman telling jokes. You know, it's the way I tell them. You know, that is all very well. And the accent, by the way, adds to the humour for many people. But if you're actually looking for the transference of information, then maybe you've got to go to the received pronunciation accent because it does appear to be, particularly for people who have English as a second language, which is the majority of people who speak English in the world, that seems to be the one they can most easily understand. So is that the accent most people want to acquire then? Do they see effective communication as the key to success? The reason we conducted this survey was because over the 25 years plus that we've been running, we have had people, fewer now than there used to be, it has to be said, who would often come to us and say, I need help, I think I need elocution, I think my accent is holding me back. Now, our response to that is, 
actually, you know, the accent isn't the issue. What we really want to look at is intelligibility. And it's easy to say, change your accent, very, very hard to do because your accent tends to get fixed by where you are and who you're with between the ages of 17 and 19. Is it really true that it's so difficult to lose one's accent and completely change the way one speaks? Well, we certainly don't advise people to try and change their accents because if you do, it's an act. And the trouble is when you come under pressure, particularly if you're not a very good actor, and most of our clients aren't actors, the chances of keeping that accent up pretty tough. Also, if you had a drink or two, you, you could lose it. I always remember when I was a schoolboy and had a, a job in a bar in the evening, we had this um, wonderfully posh uh, landlady who was, you know, very sort of, the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plain. And every night she would get plastered and she would revert to type, which was, a, was a, I mean, a fishwife. I mean, not just something a little bit slip, but she was a total fishwife. And that was because she couldn't keep it up when she'd had a few drinks. There's the famous story, of course, about Joan Bakewell going up to university and deciding that she would no longer sound like a Mancunian. I went from Stockport High School for Girls, very nice school, and local girls going there, and everyone spoke with the more or less local voice. I went up to Cambridge in 1951 to one of the two colleges which accepted women to find myself surrounded by girls who'd come from Rodine, Cheltenham Ladies College, Benenden, St Paul's. And although they thought they were speaking standard English, I found them speaking with quite honking, posh accents. And I remember saying something about, shall I go and wash the pots? And one of them went, wash the pots? What does that mean? I felt humiliated by this. Everybody knows how to wash the pots. They didn't know. Nobody had ever washed pots in their lives. So they were really extremely nice people, incidentally, but they had voices that came from the back of their throats. They'd been used to speaking to each other, hardly moving their mouths to articulate what they were saying, whereas people from Lancashire, you know, they use the mouth a lot. The story goes that this tradition among Lancashire women particularly, sprang up in the mills when the clatter of the machinery was so loud that when women spoke to each other across the machinery, they could only understand by lip-reading. That's the story. I was thoroughly intimidated by this social gaffe on my part because in those days there weren't many girls, you know, on scholarships um, up at Cambridge, of all places. There weren't many women there at all. So I thought this had to be remedied. And I remember taking myself aside and thinking, now you've just got to change. You've got to change and adapt or you won't survive. And so I came around out of the uh, loo, which is where I went to consider all this. And I came out talking like this. I mean, completely barking mad, really. So for Joan, it was more than simply a matter of convenience. And the fact that she recalls the physical circumstances of the change is not altogether irrelevant, as we shall soon discover. And people of all kinds still want to change the way they talk. I'm Mrs Boone. I teach elocution at Beach House School in Rochdale. Obviously, we don't try to profess that we're going to correct to be complete Queen's English, but um, we do try to speak pronouncing vowels and consonants and clear diction. 
It's something that I've enjoyed doing for quite a few years and uh, I work closely with the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art and every year we do their exams. Basically, verse and prose, the children have a poem or two poems to learn and we work on this and they learn how to say it and speak it. And obviously then general conversation, which you hope carries through for the rest of their life. Two funny men by Spike Milligan. I know a man who's upside down and when he goes to bed... His head's not on the pillow. No, his feet are there instead. I know a man who's back to front. The strangest man I've seen. He can't tell where he's going, but he knows where he has been. I think it gives them confidence. Confidence is, is a large part of what they're doing and they do seem to be able to carry it through. I've had children come back to me over the years and they've appreciated now, as they've got older, what I did earlier on for them. Well done, that six-year-old girl. Beginnings and ends enunciated very precisely. Better than some professional actors I could name. Here are some slightly older pupils from Beach House School. I've been doing elocution for about three years now. I used to talk quite a lot of slang at home and my mum wasn't happy with me speaking like that because it sounded really common. But now I've been pronouncing my letters correctly. If you go into an interview, you can't speak slang. You've got to speak the correct English. I've only just started elocution, actually, since September. I came here because my mum thought, and I thought, that I had to refine my voice quite a bit. My mum and dad have actually said to me, um, wow, you've actually improved in your voice already. But for these young people, who are the role models? Who do they think speaks proper English? And what can they learn from them? My auntie <laughs> and the Queen. She's a liar and she pronounces her words correctly and she always corrects me when I'm at home. She does? That is completely true. Our auntie does correct whatever we say. Today you've had three or four children who have English isn't always the first language. The school here is quite multicultural and their parents are obviously quite keen to uh, encourage this and the children come to me. Some can't pronounce different things again or they just want proper diction. So the, the parents are really, really eager for this to happen and they do actively practice with them. So I think it's quite funny because I don't feel I'm just teaching the children, I am actually teaching the parents as well. But why is it that some people can take up new ways of talking quite easily while others simply can't? Sophie Scott is a welcome fellow as well as being Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience at University College London. There does seem to be a lot of variation in how people are able to have control over their voices. Some people are very good at it, some people are specifically trained in it, other people don't even know where to start. And it does seem to be something that's quite interesting to try and understand because some people 
do change their voices a great deal even if they don't know they're doing it and other people always sound exactly the same and no matter where you drop them no matter what they're doing their voice remains the same so what determines this variation is one of the things we're really tr interested in trying to find out because if we can try and understand that that might actually help us when we come to think about how we can provide clues for people who work with patients who've had strokes and have difficulty have to relearn how to talk are there any techniques we can help them apply is there anything important going on there so what Professor Scott has been doing is to see how people who demonstrably can change their speech patterns at will achieve this. She's employed the services of impersonators and studied the way their brains work when they assume another's voice. It seems that in professional impressionist brains, when they are doing an impression, they use very different brain areas from people who can just change their voices like me, you know, a, a sort of a lay person. It seems that whereas the lay people use the same brain areas they would use to speak and they sort of drive them harder when they're trying to change their voices, the professionals use brain areas, for example, associated with really strong visual imagery or... Um, body representations, so the parts of the brain you would use to move your arms and your trunk and your head, they activate when they're thinking about changing their voice. So even though they're lying in the scanner and they can't move their head and they can't move their arms, they're thinking about doing that when they do an impression of somebody. So it's as if to come up with a way to change their voice, they're thinking about their, the whole shape of the person and how they move and what their eyes are doing, even though what they're changing is the sound of their voices. That closeness between how we speak and our physicality informs Professor Scott's work in the field of medical therapy. It's rather shocking that something like two-thirds of strokes leave people with some kind of communication deficit, so either a problem with getting communication in through the eyes or through the ears or through producing it. And this can be extremely disabling. So when somebody has, for example, a speech production deficit following a stroke, it can lead to sort of social isolation and problems way beyond the actual deficits of the stroke themselves because they find it difficult to go to the shop and buy a bag of sugar. They find it very difficult to have a conversation. And although these are things that we are absolutely central to our social interaction, we tend not to realise that they're important until they're taken away from us. So a lot of the emphasis for rehabilitation is on sometimes trying to get people to find ways to establish communicative links even though they have difficulty with, say, the basis of something like communication. We also find there's a very specific deficit people can have following a stroke, and it used to be thought it was quite rare, although it now seems to be becoming more commonly described, which is called foreign accent syndrome, where people have a really specific deficit, whereby they can still speak and they can still understand speech, but the sounds of their speech have become distorted in, when they produce them in a way that, to the ears of their fellow countrymen, sounds like a foreign accent. And now they haven't become foreign, they haven't developed a whole foreign accent, but their speech has been altered in such a way through, due to their stroke that it's producing a kind of constellation of features that to other people's ears sounds like a foreign accent. And this is really disruptive. I mean, you would think that this would be quite a... Well, they can still talk, they can still make themselves understood, they can still have a conversation. But it's surprising how distressing people find it. People really do not like sounding different. But talk there of foreign accents leads me back to just how wrong you can get it when voluntarily attempting to imitate an accent alien to you, especially when that foreign accent happens to be English. I'm Deborah Hecht. I teach voice, speech and dialects at New York University's graduate acting program. And I work in the professional theatre in New York City and theatres around the country doing vocal work and dialect work. Some of Deborah's work involves helping American actors to speak with an authentic English accent. Every single British director 
that I've ever worked with, and I'm not exaggerating, has said if it involves a character who has to be Cockney. Whatever you do, make sure they do not sound like Dick Van Dyke. Jim, Jiminy, Jim, Jiminy, Jim, Jim, Cherie. A sweep is as lucky as lucky can be. Jim, Jiminy, Jim, Jiminy, Jim, Jim, Cherie. Good luck will rub off when I shake hands with you. Or blow me a kiss. And that's lucky too. So, how does she go about the business of getting Americans to speak proper English? I mean, English, English. What I do when I'm working is I draw pictures of faces. For example, I'll make a drawing of an American head and a British head, and I use little arrows to show what directions the muscles go with American, which is out to the sides and up. You know, that's why we're so bright and happy sounding all the time. And arrows going forward towards the mouth and down for a more British sound. That's one thing. I have sheets of what sounds, you know, this vowel sound. I mean, the easy one, of course, is the words like ask, pass, can't, that shift to ask, pass, can't. But there's more lip action, more muscularity that happens. So some of it's drills, sometimes it's respelling words, sometimes it's getting on one's feet and sort of walking through the line and, you know, dipping your body or whatever to, to play with rhythms. We listen to different things. Uh, I use a couple of websites that are dialect websites. It's a physical discipline and it's an oral discipline really both at the same time. And the physical discipline, you know, we're concentrating on the face, but actually it sort of works down through the whole body. So it's a shift in your thinking, it's a shift in your breathing, it's a shifting in the way you behave. Interesting how Deborah Hecht echoes Sophie Scott in associating effective voice production very much with physical movement. Christina Shewell, back here in the UK, is another voice coach. She's also a speech therapist and communication skills trainer and author of a book covering the whole area. If RP was seen as the first way of speaking proper, then what would these days be the second way? You are clear, you are lucid, you are fluent, you can express your thoughts in an articulate way. And then the third, speaking proper, which very much relates to the area that English is now the international business language. And so many foreign people, foreign language speakers, want to speak English sounding fluent and as if they're very comfortable in it. And companies, of course, demand that. Yes, elocution on the how-now-brown-cow model might have been in retreat for some years, but the industry of speech and voice coaching has, in the modern vernacular, rebranded itself. It is now communication skills or effective speech or presentation skills, and it is big business indeed. The significant changes, I suppose, are that today it is provided more for adults than children and what is seen as desirable these days if you want to speak well is not trying to imitate the accent of an upper-class Edwardian grandee and a dialect only unearthed in a gentleman's club in Mayfair. Underneath those, and this is what really people do get confused about, is voice. And part of the reason why Birmingham is considered a sort of not very attractive accent is because of that back constriction in the throat and that rather na denasal tone. And that gives a feeling to listeners of being rather blocked. Whereas if you go into Scottish and you have that sort of up and down sound, it has a different energy, a different feeling. So people's judgments of what's proper often is based on an emotional 
judgment, which is actually based on an unconscious physical reaction to the sound that's produced. So we have voice, we have accent, we have dialect. Voice is the sound that actually comes out of our mouths. And I can speak, let's say, I'm not brilliant at accents, but let, let's say I try and do a Liverpool accent. I can do a Liverpool accent with, you know, sort of a rather tight jaw and hardly moving my lips, you know. Or I can do a Liverpool accent and actually it's much more energised. I'm using my lips and I'm going up and down. Now, those differences are vocal and we respond more to people's voices, to the energy of their pitch, their loudness, their intonation patterns, whether or not they're a bit hoarse. We respond psychosomatically more to that than we do to accents. People often talk about someone's voice and they mean accent, and they talk about accent and they mean voice. The voice is the sound that comes from my vocal cords and the sort of tube that's above in terms of resonance. So I can do an accent in a number of different voices. So, you know, if I'm doing Scottish, I could speak Scottish with a very tight throat and a very tight jaw. Or I could speak Scottish and have a lovely lilt and have quite a free jaw and a free way of rising and falling. My accent in Scottish isn't brilliant. Um, but you get the idea. Now, Janet Street Porter sometimes has said, you know, people are very rude about my accent. But the thing is, it's actually more to do with her voice than her accent. So who are today's vocal role models for Christina Schuel's clients? Well, they usually take actors, um, you know, all broadcasters. And they'll say, women often say, I want to sound like Judy Dench or Helen Mirren. And men, when I ask them about role models, it's interesting because I had one man recently who was a Turkish businessman. He wanted to sound like Alan Sugar because what he sensed was the authority in that voice. He hadn't picked up the accent issue. Alan Sugar in no way has what might be called an upper-class aristocratic accent, but we really listen to his voice because he has an authority in that to do with the fact that he doesn't rush, he takes his time, he's got um, a, a good, strong voice and a good resonant voice that we listen to. So, timely advice if I want to continue a career hiring my voice out. Khalid Aziz, whom we heard near the beginning of the programme, has a similar message. The average rate of delivery is 180 words a minute, three words a second. But a recent study showed that the most acceptable voice was one which was male in the lower registers and one which delivered at something like 152 words uh, a minute. And that probably explains why someone like Alistair Cook who was an amazing fellow because he could write a 10-minute script and get paid for 15 minutes. And with those thoughts, I take my leave. Normally, I'm a 179 words a minute man myself. Make every word count. Now, that's what I call proper speaking. And with thanks to all our contributors, especially the staff and pupils of Beach House School in Rochdale, and to you for listening. I wish you a very good day. So if you like oysters and I like oysters, I'll take oysters and give up oysters. For we know we need each other, so we better call a calling off. Fry's English Delight in Speaking Proper was presented by Stephen Fry and pronounced broadcastable by Ian Gardhouse. It was a testbed production for BBC Radio 4. <laughs> <laughs>